Welcome to Gaia's Consciousness Podcast, expanding your mind and spirit. Learn even more at Gaia.com. Watch interviews, movies, and original series created to empower the evolution of consciousness. For more information, visit GaiaPodcast.com. Your journey begins here. The 20th anniversary of the Disclosure Project passed recently, and as UFO researchers and enthusiasts look back on how the subject is being handled, we realize not much has changed. By that I mean that the U.S. government has done little to inform the public about UFOs and potential contact, but it's starting. Today we're going back to 1945 in a case that should have been as well known as Roswell, but is just now being fully revealed. It shows the mystery and challenge in deconstructing the UFO story. And we have a very special guest with us, Jacques Vallée and Paula Harris, who have come together as a team. And I have to say this for our audience, Jacques, you're a bit like a unicorn. Everybody has heard of you, but nobody ever gets to like nail you down in a seat and talk to you personally. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. So let me just uh, inform everybody of a little bit of your background that they may not know about besides the the researching aspect in UFOs. You're an academic, uh, hardcore, mathematics, astrophysics, first to use computer modeling to map Mars. And I'm doing this quickly just to say, look, this is who he is. And an early developer in AI in Silicon Valley, you continue to this day to work in Silicon Valley um, technologically and as a venture capitalist. But that's the one side of your life uh, that's your day job. The other side of your life is you, as a young one, had your own experiences, and began a deep curiosity looking from an academic lens at the UFO phenomena. Because of Jacques' incredible background, you've had access to entities such as governmental agencies and such most people in this field never get access to. So I consider you to have a very unique perspective on this phenomena in general. And we of course, everybody knows Paula. Paula has been with us, and she's the backbone of so many of the contacts that we have here at Gaia that are now coming out into the public eye, or through you, or through Paula. So, so I love the fact that the two of you, with your unique ways of approaching life, have come together to do this, because it's, it really rings to something larger in terms of ways to analyze information and data. So I've laid it out. Here everybody is, we're all together. Your lives intersected with a man named Alan Hynek in terms of both having contact early on in the days that were now put onto fictional renditions on History Channel in Project Blue Book. Anybody can go watch that. This is a real person. You're a real person who was with him. You're a real person who was with him. I want to ask each of you, let's go back into the days of the 60s. Uh, with Alan Hynek and how you were involved with him and then how you were involved with him and why this is important to this story. I, um, you know, some of my education was in France. I, I was recruited by Paris Observatory in the first team that did satellite tracking mm-hmm. in, in French science. Uh, quickly realized that um, UFOs were an unsolved problem actually unsolved and unresearched because everybody was afraid of rocking the boat about the, you know, the theories that existed. And um, I became aware of the work that had been done in the U.S., of course, you know, in American, American science is a model for European science in many ways. And um, I was uh, recruited to work at the University of Texas where I had access to records, I had access to a computer in a much more open way than I did in France Mm -hmm. to study UFOs alongside the astronomical work I was doing. And then uh, through that work, I met uh, Dr. Hynek and uh, uh, moved to Northwestern University in Chicago and was uh, worked actually with him pretty much day to day uh, for about five years. And this was while he was doing his research for the U.S. military and, and uh, intelligence agencies, right? Well, he was uh, the scientific consultant mm-hmm. to Project Blue Book, which yes. was the Air Force project to, um, to study reports from the public, mostly from the public, but also from 
the armed forces and, and try to see if there was, you know, a scientific, scientific value to, to those observations. Yes. And I was bringing the databases from the European side mm -hmm. uh, that I had been studying for, for many years and uh, starting to apply computer science, you know, uh, research to this. So I, I don't think that in my case, you can say that I have these two sides, you know, the serious side and then the UFO. The, in, in Silicon Valley, you know, yeah. does many things. One of my friends is Federico Fagin, and a physicist, an Italian uh, physicist in Silicon Valley, uh, who was very instrumental in um, semiconductor research, mm -hmm. actually uh, invented the first chip, if you mm -hmm. want to call mm -hmm. it that way. And we had that discussion, and he said, you know, when we stop looking at things we don't understand, like UFOs, we might as well sell Silicon Valley to the Japanese or to <laughs> that, some other nation. That is okay. so true. This is what we do. Yes. You know, it's not today's technology. It's what are the challenges that will get us to, to stay at the frontier of technology. Absolutely. And I was doing an interview with someone recently, and they were talking about the world of settled science. Well, you don't go on beyond the parameters of settled science. And I said, are you kidding me? The one thing science should never be is settled. Science is constant inquiry and growing. And the fact that you say this is really what Silicon Valley is about. Good for all the good it brings and all the challenges it brings. Early in the 20th century, some philosophers said that uh, essentially all of science had been discovered and that the future generation of scientists which add the next decimal point, the next decimal place, you know, to the constants that had been measured. You know, the How speed arrogant. of light, you know, all those things were known. <laughs> just another you just needed point. a little bit more precision. <laughs> and then after that, there was quantum mechanics, yes. there was relativity, there was... An <laughs> and on and on to Everything today. else. Yes. You know, and you having de dealing with AI, no, some, that would be another entirely different interview to look at. I'd love to talk to you separately from this story one day about mm -hmm. AI and where you see it going, okay? But we're not going to do that right now. So, you became involved with Alan, uh, Alan during this period, and I highly recommend anybody, just for kicks, go watch the fictitious version. Go watch Pro Project Blue Book, because his son, Paul Hynek, was actually a consultant to it. There are some real, they're dealing with real cases. They just put little spins on it and have sexy Russian spies and things. But it gives you an idea of what he was up to and how it gets spun. So, Paula, now, how did you initially end up with Alan Hynek? Well, I was uh, teaching high school here in Colorado, and they gave me a class called science fiction. I, I have a master's in education and have taught English for 40 years. And so Close Encounters of the Third Kind came out, and Jacques, you know, <laughs> <laughs> it was around the character of the French uh, scientist, uh, you know, Francois Truffaut played Jacques, Jacques Vallée. The irony is I never met Jacques Vallée. I, what I decided to do was go to the Center for UFO Studies in Evanston, Illinois, and that was the time that Alan began his own uh, group, which is Center of UFO Studies, KUFOS, and I walked into the offices to see if what I had seen on screen was real, mm -hmm. and um, the secretary knew I spoke Italian, and I thought I'd never see Dr. Heineck in a million years, but sure enough, from around the corner came this man with a, a white goatee and, and a pipe, and he came over and he said, oh, he said, uh, you speak Italian, you know, you're visiting. And I said, yes, and he said, would you be willing with, to work with me? He said, because I have boxes of Italian sightings, I have all kinds of, uh, of work that needs to be done. And he came to Boulder several times to visit me, but mostly he sent me all the sightings and bought me a typewriter. In those days, we had typewriters. typewriters. Yes. Okay. <laughs> no so, but I never knew Jacques. Yeah. Uh, and in and, and my wildest dreams, I knew that he was a venture capitalist, so it wasn't until four years ago that um, uh, he was working on a case and I was working on a case and we came together to do this. But all the time, that film really affected me emotionally, especially everybody. at the very mm -hmm. end when yeah. Francois Truffaut has the encounter with yes. the beings. Yes, thank mm -hmm. you for that. And, you know, how do you say meant to be in French when something's meant to be? C'était écrit. 
was written. It is in, written. It is in written. The universe. It's okay. written in the stars. It was <laughs> so it was written in the stars for you to be there at that moment to run into Alan. And the reality is that the Italian, uh, the Italian military and intelligence communities have always taken this more seriously uh, than and have been a little more forthcoming than we have in the U.S. So I can see where that would have added greatly to the body of knowledge he was studying. Yes, and in the uh, we must add though that um, there's more of a vested interest in in keeping it secret here. I think. I mean, yes. it's. Uh, I think that all over the world. I mean, when Jacques was younger, they were interested in France in this, mm-hmm. and in Italy, mm-hmm. we were always interested. I lived there for many years. In the conversation, I think one of the things that brings us together is that we're both European, mm-hmm. and we have a lot of conversations about the the, the world view, the right. world view, and on, that's on UFOs. What, and I have to say, this book you've written, Trinity: The Best Kept Secret. It really does a beautiful job of your articulation of how we've come as governments and citizens to view and embrace and react to this whole phenomena. And it's so elegantly written. I have to say, people need to read this book. It's very well done because we're still not looking at the big picture. Everybody writes their little books about their piece, but they're not looking at the overview of it. You know, what strikes me in in the current debate, which is becoming more and more active, and of course there may be a report from the government, from the Navy, about the current state of the phenomenon and government reaction to it. What strikes me is that all the attention, everything you see on TV and so on, is what is the government going to reveal to us? Now, my you know, my approach isn't that. I think I don't think you should wait for the government no, to I tell agree. you what's going on. Hallelujah. I mean, your neighbors have seen <laughs> UFOs. You know, in this case, I have a, a colleague who says, "Well, you know, you had some clearances along the way when you worked on, you know, space pro- projects and so on, but you'll never have the clearances it takes to know what's really going on in a case like this." You know, and at, in the Manhattan Project, yeah. and my response is, I don't need the clearances. I, I have the witnesses. Yes. You know, these two little kids were there. The government wasn't there. You know, these two little kids were there on the spot <laughs> when the thing crashed. It actually didn't crash. It crash landed. Mm-hmm. It was under power. Mm-hmm. It didn't break apart. Mm-hmm. And the entire thing was recovered. Mm-hmm. It's an, a, incredible. So the more, and, and Paula had been, Researching this for oh, four or five well, years. Well, you're in your 12th year or something oh, by now. Five years yeah. before. Yeah, yeah. No, I came in because I had been looking at other cases in New Mexico. And, um, Sirocco. A, and, a friend of mm-hmm. mine knew one of the, um, of the witnesses mm-hmm. who by then was in his uh, late 70s and 80s and wanted to introduce me to him. And then I discovered that uh, Paula had already done research with that witness, so we combined, you know, the, the information we had, yeah. and then we went back to the site, and that was the story. Yes, and Paula, I mean, Paula hears something, she says, I'm on my way. She's like Indiana Jones when it comes to it. When there's well, field research and people who are ready to talk or there's evidence somewhere. I have to get there. You have to get there immediately. Even with this case, Jacques, um, what had happened is that I got to the six-year-old, Remy Baca. Thank God I got to interview him in Washington because he passed away. Yes. And, and we needed to, to get the two sides of the story. Jacques read... Remy's book, so he was able to get Remy's. Mm-hmm. But when he was doing the book, he needed the other witness. He needed the six-year-old. We had the nine-year-old. Yes. And uh, I realized that, you know... Seven, it, he was, he'd become seven by yeah. the time this happened. Uh, yeah. And what had happened is yeah. that we need both yes. sides. And even though they weren't living in the same place, field research, and I've enjoyed doing it with, with Jacques, because we keep going down there. I don't enjoy the snakes, and I don't enjoy... <laughs> I don't... He likes Mexican food better than I do. Because um, you're hanging out in some... Well, there aren't a lot of options when you're out there in New Mexico well, no, in the desert. Well, no, desert, yeah. high yeah. desert, and then we even went to ground zero, yes. because uh, ironically, I mean, you might want to talk about the, the impression we went to ground zero where the actual bomb was was exploded, but... We are going to talk about that. Yeah, it, 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 it does do something to you. 
It does. It's, mm-hmm. It shows the background of what these little boys live through. But you mentioned my, my way of dealing with life. Yes, I'm a, uh, uh, I'm a field researcher. I don't sit at home, take a telephone, talk to people. I have to go there. <laughs> you got to go. I have to go there. And you it, and I have been on our own adventures. We went to Sardinia yeah. and so forth. And, yes. and I, so I know how you work. You get out there, you roll your sleeves up, and you dig in. You dig yes. into wherever the evidence and research is. Yeah. And I totally admire that about you. And so what I'd like to do now, because now we're getting into the book, okay? We're going to get into this story, and we're going to go back to that that fateful day when the world changed, when the first atomic blast took place in New Mexico. This Trinity site, and and the thing, there are a few things I'd like to say to set this up. The native people who lived there, these families who lived in these small towns surrounding it, are um, they're they're in uh, they're intermarried between the Native American population and the Spanish and Mexican population, and you have people who are mostly living close to the land, farmers, shepherds, and so forth. And uh, the U.S. government, the the famous bar, what is the Al Cafe? Bar. These little kids would come and go, and they get an ice cream cone or some pop or something, not knowing that these men with briefcases were people like Oppenheimer. They were just the background of life. No one paid attention to them. They served you. And they weren't even worthy of warning that this blast was going to take place. And I get upset when I think about this. And that lasted 70 years. And the reason the subtitle of of Trinity is the best kept secret is that the secret was kept by the government, by whoever in the Pentagon was, was running this, and the secret was kept by the witnesses. Yes. And that is unique. I mean, we know about Roswell, we know about other cases, other crashes in New Mexico that I've researched and so on. I knew nothing about this. And the UFO community, so vaguely aware that there had been something there, but it wasn't terribly important. And there, there were a few people who filmed, you know, the site. And then they went on. They went on to Roswell because Roswell had much more documentation, and you know, yes. witnesses spoke mm-hmm. and so on. What what I couldn't understand when I first was exposed to this is where were the witnesses during all that time? You know, how come they didn't show up anywhere? Well, the when you reconstruct the history of what happened there. The first atomic bomb in the history of mankind. History changed. And that that entire area was a secret area. And people were afraid. They knew that you don't talk about what you see. You don't talk about what you've done. Even the, the people, you know, their, their fathers, their uncles were hired, you know, as carpenters to work on on some of the structures that held the bomb. Yeah. But you go home, you don't talk about it. And they never told the people that they were going to detonate this thing and what it could do to them physically, which it did to them. That's right. And it affected generations of them. There were very heavy decisions that were made there that people regretted before, regretted, you know, after after the, uh, the explosion. But they just didn't have the science. They didn't know how powerful the bomb was going to be. The bomb turned out to be four times more powerful than all the calculations they had made. They didn't even know if the bomb would work. Many experts said, this bomb will never work. You can't do it. So part of what I try to do, you know, many people do this research by you rush to the scene, you record what the witnesses have said, and then you go home and you write something. Okay, and that's fine, okay? At least it gets into the literature. If you want to do a good job, you should know what happened before the sighting. What happened Absolutely. after? Why did the witness behave this way? Right. Why did they use certain words rather than certain other words? Why did this craft show up one week after that atomic blast yes. in that what area? Yes, what does the landscape what were they looking tell for? you, you know? So I spent some time, you know, every time we went there, alone, you know, walking around, sort of letting the, the landscape tell me what the, what the history was there, both the, the geological history, which is amazing in New Mexico, of mm-hmm. course, but also the, you know, the tribes, which is why on the cover, we didn't yes. want to put 
Enrico Fermi and Oppenheimer. No. We wanted to, to put the local... The local These people, are the ones who experienced the all young, of it. The young kid with his yeah. horse, you know. I love and that. And Mama picture. Grande, you know, his grandmother who was a leader of the Apache in the area, okay? Now, those were the people who were there. Yes, the scientists were there for four years, and then they went back to Chicago, they went back to teaching, mm -hmm. or they went to Los Alamos. But what about the local people? What did they see? Yes. What did they experience? And that was really, uh, you wrote this so beautifully in this book about what happened that day and the fact that you and Paula did go back to ground zero in this horrid, eerie feeling in this plaque at the entrance of it, which Oppenheimer is on video saying himself. This is really critical because as I, it breaks my heart every time I go back and watch that piece on YouTube of what he had to say afterward. I am now the destructor of the destroyer of worlds, and it appears he's crying when he's saying it. There was so much, I think, regret and shame around what we had unleashed on humankind and other cultures from other places or other dimensions have every reason to be concerned because we can shoot that stuff out there too. And so they began coming to military installations in droves. These, these events, these sightings, these crashes. So let's go back to Remy. Let's just pick it up there, unless you have something you want to say about Ground Zero first and how it felt being there. Well, that was, there were a few funny coincidences, if you want to call them coincidences yeah. in this <laughs> research. Um, I was having breakfast. I had gotten up early. I was waiting for Paola and, and another researcher <laughs> who came with her. And... Um, there was a newspaper there. I pick up the newspaper and it says that there is going to be a demonstration on the way to Ground Zero. Mm -hmm. And I thought, these people are crazy. They want to do a political demonstration in the middle of a desert. You know, I mean, nobody's going to bother. They're, they are by the side of an expressway. Nobody, who's going to stop? <laughs> Except that that was the one time when the base was open. I mean, the, the Ground Zero is, is open twice twice a year, mm -hmm. where visitors can come in. And there are thousands of cars that are going to take that turn. Including unmarked black cars, dignitaries, as I recall, when I read, that's what I read in your book, right? Yeah. So we decided, instead of going to the site that day, we were going to visit you know, the, the place where the explosion had, had, been, mm -hmm. had been detonated. And... Um, there are several things that are, you know, that, that if you pay attention, there are several things that begin to take over your consciousness, you know. Um, consciousness is a loaded word, but you can't, you know, you're driving 10 or 12 miles after you've passed the, the turn point mm -hmm. all the way to the gate itself. Right. And you realize after a while that the desert isn't the way it should be. No, it's like you a know, wasteland. The, 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 the plants are mm -hmm. very, very small, but they mm -hmm. are, in fact, dying, mm -hmm. you know. This is, you know, how many years since the explosion? You, you can tell that the, the earth has been damaged by what happened there and that it, it has retained the memory of it. Mm -hmm. And, of course, the people. They, because it had to be so secret, and, you know... It's easy to blame the scientists. It's easy to blame the army. They didn't know what was going to happen. I mean, this was a revolution in science. Many people didn't think it would work. Mm -hmm. It did work. Mm -hmm. They arguably, you know, the, the, the thing was we need to stop the war in the Pacific. We need to stop the war in Japan. The war in Europe had come to an end, right. you know, with the, in, with right. Germany and so on, the war in Japan was the, was at a very high point where the the estimates were that over a million people would die yes. in a few months. A, okay. a million more. And and just to add this in, Jacques, as a little boy, you were exposed to World War II and death. You didn't have to see it close up, but you saw the bombs dropping, the people fleeing, everyone hiding, and living in a, a, a very challenging condition during that war, so you knew the impact well, of war. But, but the little town where I was born happened to be a, a lock on uh, the, the main road between Paris and Normandy. So you can imagine that yes. everybody wanted to use that road yeah. and the railroads. Yeah. 
the Germans first and yeah. uh, to reinforce Normandy and then uh, you know the, the allies of America and Great Britain essentially yeah. needed to destroy those bridges right. and uh, the town was bombed 18 times yeah. and I was there. Yeah. And by the time you're four or five, you understand what's going on. Yeah. Um, and, uh, so the know, horrors of war were imprinted upon you very deeply from a very early age. I was so in, you could in the middle you know, in, of, in all of, of the war. Right. So, so uh, but there was no atomic bomb right. in Europe ever, right. okay? There, was, there were two atomic bombs in Japan. But the bomb that exploded at Ground Zero in New Mexico did more damage, was more powerful than the bomb that destroyed Nagasaki. Mm -hmm. The reason is that they, they blew up the bomb, and they call it a test. Mm -hmm. Now, in physics, a test is, you know, you take a little, little vial and you do, you do a mix and you verify the equation and, and the, the thing. And then if it works, you go, you go up in scale. You go to an industrial process. Okay. Here they started from a full-scale bomb. It wasn't a test. Mm -hmm. It was a test in the sense that it was the first time they did right, it. Right. But it was e equivalent in power to the Nagasaki plutonium bomb. And they exploded it at ground, you know, at ground zero. Yeah, yeah. At, you know, and in Nagasaki, they, in, once they realized the damage that they had done to New Mexico, in Nagasaki, they reset the bomb so that it would explode higher, higher yeah, yeah. so that th there wouldn't be so much radioactivity at right. ground level. Uh -oh. Those are the things that I learned in... <laughs> In doing the research, I know. It's you like, know, with, with Paola. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I guess you could say that was a silver lining. It so, could have even been worse. In a, but in the, a way, yeah. I wanted to add yeah. that this book, yes, it's it has a UFO in it, but it is a historical book. Oh, it's, it's an, an, I highly recommend people read it, this. It for really a, needs yeah. to be in, in libraries that have social studies and yes. history. Because uh, the, the incredible research that Jacques did, uh, it starts with, out with the diary of Laura Fermi, her husband Enrico Fermi is was there, and yeah. was, you know, and and uh, but uh, the fact that we had a, a historical event and a UFO come in a month later, not coincidentally, is not coincidence. Yeah. yeah, and excuse me, I think I I think I said a week earlier, a month later. Yes. Yeah. A month so later. let's talk. Okay, now let's get to the story and the boys. So the bo the family a. They were affected by the blast. The mother went blind in one eye. Um, one of them went by temporarily, had bleeding out of the ears. They did have future defects in their children. Um, so they were never warned by the government. They were affected by the radiation of that blast and by the sure light of the blast. Now, it's a month later. The kids are out riding the fences because they're cattle ranchers. And they have binoculars with them because you got to be able to read the brands on the cattle mm -hmm. along the fences. So... They, they might only be seven and nine years old, but great powers of observation because that's their job and they'll get in trouble by their dad if they don't do it right. <laughs> and they knew the territory. And they knew the territory. And they were, they were on horseback so yes. they could quickly go to any place. Mm -hmm. They also drove the truck because yeah. all the adults were at war. He and might and have been short, but if you could see out the window, that's all you need. <laughs> that's right, that's <laughs> little Jose. So that case is incredible because, you know, as opposed to Roswell, as opposed to many other cases, mm -hmm. the, the kids were there before the UFO yes. came in. Yes. Okay? They saw it come over their head and crash. It, it bumped into a communication tower, mm -hmm. bent part of the tower. It, it didn't explode. An airplane would have blown into pieces at that point. The, the craft kept its integrity. There was one panel that was ejected, and they found the material later, and they kept it. Which to yes. a physicist we're is going very to get into this and all we're going to get into all kinds of fun stuff. <laughs> and then, Angel they hair. Saw it, <laughs> and, and then they had access to they saw what the army did yes. when they came in eventually yeah. for nine days. They were the sneaky were and there. they were short and they could go in and they knew the brush, they knew where they could hide, they could watch everything, and when they went home at the end of the day, they would sneak down there and get stuff. So I mean this is an amazing story. <laughs> okay, let's talk about when what they had to say about the experience of after it crashed, there were a couple things going on. They saw little 
funny-looking occupants, and I don't remember the Spanish name for the cricket-headed. Obrecitos. Obrecitos. They were explaining insects. They had little men, little men with kind little of insecty-looking heads. Well, you know, I had the privilege of working when I started, you know, reconstructing the story and doing working on the book of working from the transcripts that Paola had yes. already done yes. with, the, with both witnesses, yeah. including the, the one who had passed away. What fascinated me was looking at every word and every comma. You could, you could see their emotions and you could see when, when things changed. Sometimes I call them men. Sometimes I call them little men. Little men. Uh -huh. Sometimes they talk about them as, they, as if they were insects. Or right. They were, so... You know, they did Paola have very yes. Paula, tell us how they they saw their faces because it well, was. Well, I think uh, through the binoculars, by the way, from a couple hundred yards away. Well, let's add by saying that there were no flying saucer magazines. Kenneth Arnold hadn't come out with that word yet. There was no television. There was no YouTube. So these kids had there was no, no context. There was no context to what they were looking at, and it was not a flying saucer. It was an avocado-shaped craft. Right. And and so the when the little kids went up to see it, and, and they could see the beings that were floating back and forth. Well, this is key, what you just said. They weren't, like, walking. They, they appeared to be kind of just moving and back floating. And, and they heard the sounds. I mean, Jose, in particular, the older boy, thought that they were in trouble, that they had been hurt. So his feelings, they had, and Jack was, had mentioned the, the psychic connection between, because they watched them for over an hour. With the binoculars, so the the connection they had, and Jose's wanting to go in and help them because they were hurt, and they were making this high pitched sound, which is so unusual. And then you know, Remy being the the younger one, it was started to cry, but you can understand because it was a lot of smoke, and and the mesquite was all burning, and he was scared, and this this contact this emotion though thing when when i started reading about the emotion part yeah. of it i i my mind flashed back to clifford stone when clifford stone was initially going on his investigations um for uh, on behalf of the, military, the recovery the recovery yeah. um he said he, he would become over throughout his life overwhelmed with emotions of what these creatures that he saw they were, able to were trying to say to yes, him we're in trouble yeah we're you know we're in trouble and this is the same thing the boys were going away with this is feeling of empathy and sympathy and great emotion which, which you don't hear in these yeah, stories which often. is not done verbally it's yeah. done from the contact yes. from these more telepathic Yes, yeah, and 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 you know when you're talking to little kids, I mean, because there's so many different stories where little children, like the, the African case and so forth, yes. have had contact with beings that the little kids aren't making this up. No, they're 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 reliving it. They they they're very honest. And in the case of Jose, maybe Jacques would like to. Uh, talk about this. He has a photographic memory. Yes. He'll tell you the day yes. that this happened, right? He was an amazing witness. Yes. Gaia.com lets you explore over 8,000 films, documentaries, and original series. There's so much going on in the unseen world. Hidden truth. Why in the media today? They still seem to hold back on these incredible stories. Behind an unknown universe. Where science and spirituality all come together. Gaia.com, content you can't find anywhere else. For more information, visit GaiaDisclosure.com. When, when, when was the tower taken out, you know? And, and he will go um, 45, 48, 54, um, 86, it was taken out in 86. His mind goes like a computer, yeah, yeah. you know, clack, 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 It was a perfect clack, job boom. to be riding the rails and, and looking at brands and counting, counting well, cattlehead. Some of it, you know, is almost unbelievable from yeah. where we stand yeah. of what, what they did. Yeah. And then you have to remember, we, we ask, you know, they were talking about getting a souvenir. Okay. Yes. That's, <laughs> That's appropriate. <laughs> getting a souvenir. And then, they, um, I think it was Remy who explained to, to Paola that in those days, you know, your father might not come back 
from the front. Right. You, know, you might lose an uncle, you might lose a relative. You might. So souvenirs for families were very important. Mm -hmm. You would save things that reminded you of that person and mm -hmm. so on. This was, you know, the end of the war. Mm -hmm. Many people did not come back. Right. And so to, to them, the, it, you have to go back to that context, which is, you know, relatively easy for me because I remember yeah. World War II, yeah, yeah. okay, which was, you know, of course... You would have been going intense. for souvenirs yourself. Uh, we didn't have any souvenirs because yeah. uh, the, the first house where my parents had all their books and so on burned down completely. So yeah. Yeah. they restarted essentially with furniture that was borrowed from relatives. Right. Okay, that's right. how I grew up. And so that's how these boys so were living. So I could living. understand, I yeah. could relate to what, what these people were, were saying. So, so that, that's, why, that's why people say, well, how did that little boy go in and, and, you know, which is Jose, go in and borrow? He's saying, I didn't steal anything. I didn't. It was, well, he had something, like, what did he call it? A crowbar, He basically. had a crowbar because he couldn't pull it off of the, the bracket. Inside of the on smooth a curved walls. Yes, it was on a plaque mm -hmm. that had a, a, a copper circle. Mm -hmm. And this piece was in the middle. <clears throat> Uh, and we still don't know. I mean, this is Jacques' job as a scientist to go into the piece. But to pull it off, he had to get a crowbar to pull it off. And then the pin fell on the ground and he, he took it and they went and they had to hide it because there was inventory taken. And when that piece yeah. from the inside of the craft is missing... The army is not happy. Because we have to reestablish again that the army did not come and take that away for, what was it, nine days. Yeah. So the boys knew where it was and had access. His father knew where it was. Mm -hmm. Another one of the town constables knew where it was. So three people, that's an, another thing that's unique about, out of the ten things yes. that we've listed that are unique about yes. this case in all of UFO history, mm -hmm. the... There are three people who actually went into the craft. Yes. Okay. Uh, the on the second day, or the, actually the third day, the the father. I mean, the kids reported it to yeah, their Jose's family father. right away. Yeah. They still thought that it was probably some aircraft. Mm -hmm. There were lots of aircraft that you know were damaged. Experimental or, uh, stuff going on out there or too. Experimental things mm -hmm. also. So they. Um, the, the the father and a policeman, a state yeah, policeman. Yeah, Sheriff Apodaca, mm -hmm. you know, went inside together. Mm -hmm. And then on the last day, when the soldiers were not were relaxed because the thing was loaded on the truck, mm -hmm. ready to go back to, you know, uh, to White Sands, right. they decided to go in, uh, Jose, and Jose uh, Padilla, Mm -hmm. uh, went in and looked for a souvenir. Yes. I love, so, I love that he had the... That's an incredible story. I just, I there love is no this other story. case like it. No, there isn't. This, this is, is an not incredible. an abduction, okay? They no. walked into the no. craft. Absolutely. Okay. okay, so they went in. So <laughs> now we have this, and it's something where the local people knew you don't tangle too much with the government, don't give them too much information. They're living their lives, you're trying to live yours. So there's another piece of this that I found just absolutely fascinating and kind of a, a fun uh, way of phenomena. And that was, was it a cousin of theirs? So the name of the souvenir, uh, souvenir in Spanish is tesoro, right? Yeah, tesoro. So they had the, tesoro means treasure. Treasure. Yeah. They had their treasure, their tesoro, that, that they'd hidden away and they were widely enough to know military were coming around asking questions. They put it under the floorboard of a shed. Now, it refreshed my memory. There was a cousin, I think it was, who was a shepherd. And I think he was in that shed. Was he sleeping in that shed when oh, three well, little... <laughs> three little cousin. It was uh, a man they hired to take care of the cattle the sheep. When, the sheep, yeah. when it was going to be sold. Okay, you know? so this man's in there. And He's an employee. They, he, he yeah, he, it scared the bejesus out okay, of him that these three little beings seemed to show up in his room no, asking for the They came through the wall, and they right? actually he went to, he was hired by the Baca, yes. by, by the Baca family, and he came over and he said, I think I have to leave here because three little men came, <laughs> came in through, through my wall looking for the Tesoro, which presents a problem for Jacques and me because we both, I think, thought he it was... He didn't know about the Yeah, tesoro. but we 
thought it was a terrestrial, the bracket. We tend to believe that. So if that's the case, and this We're is just really putting it true, all out there, Paula. if this is true, if this is terrestrial peace, and why uh, is the testimony of the sheep herder <laughs> saying that the beings are coming in looking for, for that? For the Tesoro. Why Using their they, language they, telepathically. Yes, yeah. Well, uh, let that be, remain a mystery. Because but that is a mystery. Yeah. Uh, if it's belongs to the army, and we tended to believe that was the case, then why did this testimony say this? And he's not making it okay, up. Okay, I have an idea for you both. Maybe it was the E.T.'s Tesoro that they'd picked up on a trip and hammered into <laughs> their own walls. Yes, I mean, <laughs> you stole their Tesoro. It was our stuff well, they put on the You wall. know, sometimes I think it would be an interesting day in court if the government wanted to claim it, because I have it now, yes. okay? And we're studying it with my, my colleagues. It's not in my house, but... So don't uh, go looking you know, for your address, <laughs> anybody. We're going to pass it out to different teams, yeah. you know, metallurgists, space people, and so on. It looks like a perfectly ordinary piece of, you know, a, a bracket you might have in a, um, in a rotating machine, you know, in, on a farm, or, you know. And except that it's all in metric system, no, who Which was using have. the metric system in New Mexico in 1945? No okay, uh, <laughs> it doesn't have a brand. It's something. Mm -hmm. It's pretty crude. Something mm -hmm. that you might mold it in in college in the lab, mm -hmm. you know, for particular experiments. So you wouldn't bother to put a brand on it, you know. So it looks like an industrial part, mm -hmm. but it it isn't. You know, what was it doing inside a UFO? So my theory, and I'm. You know, we get into heated arguments <laughs> in Silicon Valley. Because it hasn't been settled as science quite yet, maybe? It's still being examined? Well, um, you know, my feeling is it looks like an ordinary bracket that you could, you could get from farm, you know, equipment. So maybe the army improvised. You remember, they are a, a long way from electricity. Right. Long way from power. Right. They may generate the power with, you know, on the jeeps, on the trucks, and then use it to do whatever they need to do inside this this object. Okay, so they need power. They bring a cable, and you need something to wrap up the cable. This would be perfect to wrap up a cable. Or but what about the fact like it that. was on this copper plate inside, affixed to the wall, and everything fit perfectly in metrics? I mean, how do you... Well, but that's the only thing inside. Yeah. So it's something that the army could have improvised, yeah. could have could, could have done, done there. something the, with. You know, the engineers so that from it, the army could have done that. That's your hypothesis okay. now. That was my initial working hypothesis yes. because it looks it looks human. It looks very crude. It looks like a, an industrial part. You right. Could, it you is could very buy. simple. You get on eBay. Mm -hmm. and, you know, you, <laughs> you can buy things like that. And now, Paula, and you guys have been in heated arguments over this, right? Because well, you no, no, I t we tend to agree that it could be, right. but then these things keep cropping up, like the metric system, yeah. and and the the beings coming yeah. through the wall looking for it, and other things that are cropping up in the, and so we have to keep changing our minds. And well, you just have to stay back open. For the it, army came back. Nice, <laughs> right? Yeah. So we're gonna because we have so much more to talk about. We could just talk about this piece all day. This bracket now. Let's talk about the other things that were found because the boys were very, very resourceful and filled up a gunny sack full of what they call angel hair, which becomes very interesting when the third witness later, in years later, Sabrina Padilla, Sabrina Padilla yes, is playing yes. with it. So they get this translucent stuff. That's that all lit up. It's all colors. lit up. It shines at night. It's very pretty. And the boys give it to people to put on Christmas trees and in their windows. Of and course. I mean, that's pretty. what you do when a UFO <laughs> crashes in your backyard. What do you do? Get the you, pretty you stuff. You take the angel yeah. hair and you put it on the Christmas of tree. Of course you do. But that's what, what anybody would do. <laughs> I, can see, I, can see the I can see a movie of this book. And I can this see has that. to be a movie. It starts with these kids, you know, decorating a Christmas tree with fiber right. optics. Right. You know, thinking... Because they don't know what Oh, I've it got is. the other scene. Then you have the cousin testifying later saying, yeah, we used to play, and I, it bit me. It yeah. hurt my hand and bit me. We should, we should stop on, on the cousin because we were ready to publish the book. Yeah. You know, we yeah, announced yeah. it on, yeah. on the Internet and so yeah. on. And then 
Paola found Sabrina. Yes. And Sabrina comes in, you know, at right angle to every every other. She's there several years later. later. She's a seven-year-old. Right. She, you know, is essentially, you know, comes to live with the family because that's the only family she has at that point. And she is there with her her eyes of, you know, a young child discovering all this. And she's the one who... <laughs> You know, tells that story, including some things that even the first two witnesses Didn't by know. then had moved well, on. Well, they never mentioned that it was giving like electrical shocks. And, it was and biting they never, them. And they never mentioned the foil. And, they and, never, and, and because, we're going to get to the uh, foil know, after they, Angel. Yeah, because so we stopped and we, you know, we started, restarted the research. Yes. Uh, you know, Paula started, restarted the research with, with Sabrina and that added, you know, the <laughs> cherry on the cake, essentially, at the end of nailing all the yes. previous testimony together. Absolutely. And, and it was fascinating. Her, her testimony was so innocent. Well, she was telling, and, and, and Jacques, the first thing he said is, we got to go and meet her. Yeah. So he flew to Los Angeles. She lives in Los Angeles. And we sat in front of her, and Jacques said, this is amazing. It's because <laughs> it, these are children. Yeah, and these are their direct recollections. And we have artifacts, and we can talk about foil. And let's talk about the foil now because this is fascinating. Yeah. So she said, oh, yeah, they had this little piece of foil that the boys got, and they mentioned it too. It was uh, one piece of foil was used to fix, I think, a windmill, well, men, when windmill at one point, but, you know, you use what you've got. But she was saying she used to play with this foil foil, which was very thin and very, very light like a feather, no weight. And she would scrunch it up in her hand, and she thought it was trick foil. It was a joke foil. Because when she'd open her hand, it would pop back out and be smooth again. Right? Yes. <laughs> Let's talk about that. That would be called memory metal today. Yes. Something like that, right? And, and it was speculated, of course, it showed up at Roswell yeah. later, two yeah. years later. And so the argument could be said that, you know, people were researching that, mm -hmm. kind, of, that kind of thing. Um, Battelle Memorial Institute in Ohio was a leader in metallurgy, and they were researching that kind of metal for uh, aerospace applications, right. aviation, and later for space. Uh, Battelle comes up again and again in this whole history. You know, they would be certainly one of the places where there would have been great awareness of the entire UFO mm -hmm. recovery Are you history. saying Dell? Bechtel. Hmm? Bechtel. 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 I just Bechtel. I thought I misheard you. Bechtel. Bechtel is yeah. a very interesting Bechtel. Yes, scientific institution. Yes. Still today, very active yes. in metallurgy applied to space and high-power flight and everything else. Right. So, But in 1947, you could say, well... There were prototypes of strange metals, new alloys. You know, there was all, all that research going on. 1945, well, maybe in a lab somewhere, but you wouldn't expect to... Lying to around have, in the desert next to an avocado-shaped craft. You know, to shower the landscape with, mm -hmm. you know, this extraordinary metal. Was it thought that it was molten because there was high heat, that it might have been in a molten state initially and settled into this... Veneer no, of this, I, I or was, think, did it come? Was I think it that what way? happened, and this is amazing because Jose did not know that that there were long strips of this metal because right. all they found was a little square that they mm -hmm. they uh, they fixed the uh, the windmill with. Mm -hmm. So Jose didn't know the testimony of Sabrina. Yeah. He, he was shocked because that means the father went back there and on he his got own. Some. And he, he went and got some stuff that he never told his son about. Yeah. So the father, who's riding the horse, could, found these strips of metal, never told the son, never told Jose. But then Jose had left for the Korean War at the age of 17. Yeah. So it, it, Sabrina's playing with other materials that the father went back to get. And I don't know if you noticed, but she kept telling us that the soldiers kept coming back to their farmhouse yes. in the back door. And they, the father okay, said, that's important to point out. The army this happened would on come their back. land. Yes, the military had to get permission to build a road and gate on yes. their land yes. to come retrieve this thing. Yes, the weather balloon. 
Yeah. The weather, the weather balloon. balloon. The weather balloon. <laughs> the, uh, the ten ton weather balloon. Yeah, the ten ton weather balloon. <laughs> the weather balloon that, that they couldn't get out of the gate there. And the irony is, and, and Jack and I laugh over a lot of this stuff, the father was very honest. He said, do you want the weather balloons that we picked up already? Do you want them back? Do you want the weather balloons back? Because so they had, had yes. wet, the weather balloon debris around. Yes. Yeah, actual weather, not this. Actual well, the property's 80,000 acres. Yeah. So how many weather balloons? Yeah. No, they, the, the army was launching weather balloons all day long, yeah. you know, be, uh, f because of white sands. Right. You know, and... So they well, had little pieces of that. We'll give them back to you, but that's yeah, nothing to we'll do with the avocado in our backyard. <laughs> 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 so the kids are going, the father's going, this comes in at the last minute. Sabrina comes in at the last minute yes. before you finish the book. In the 1950s. Which, yeah. This was, this was incredible. In right? Yeah. And so what do you think? That this pinkish, luminescent, angel hair, spaghetti stuff that they put on their Christmas trees and that stung when she touched it, bit her when she touched it. What do you think that might have been? We don't know, but one of the most interesting things is that she talks about the the heat being transmitted yeah. through that so that you, you could apply it to your skin when it was hot. And I can testify it gets really, really hot, hot in New Mexico in the middle of August because I've been there. And you could you could put it to your skin and that it would, metal, it would that memory stay metal. cool. Yes, it did. Metal would not warm right. up, okay? Yeah. So my physicist So she put friends, it on her cheeks because it felt cool in the middle of the summer. Yes. My, my physics friends are very, very interested in that. You know, how can you do that? Why would they transmit heat that way rather than warming up the metal? Right. You know, and uh, what is the structure? What is the fine structure of that, you know, uh, of that substance? But you were, you were, I think, referring to the fiber optics. I was initially, yeah, um, thank you for um, the metals because we needed that part yeah, too. But, but uh, the, we, the angel it, it hair. Might be, the angel hair might be fiber optics. Uh, it might be a type of fiber optic. And whatever it was, they collected 10-pound bag of it. Yes. Okay, now let, let's move forward because when you're talking about fiber optics, according to... Philip Corso. Corso, yes. The yeah. same thing comes into play here. Yeah. And in this story, there's another metal filing cabinet in the military where stuff is unpacked and looked at for, with the intention of examining and perhaps reverse engineering. So I want to get to that part of the story now. So with all of this, and, and there's so much more, and Paolo, you did such a good job out there, because you were treating them with such respect and they, what they deserved, rather than the military coming around and bullying them and overlooking them, calling them, oh, they're just a couple of Indian kids there. Who cares? They didn't see anything. They're not, they didn't matter to anyone's life. And it turns out they mattered the most. So now we're past that part. And I really recommend people pick it up and read it. I love this story. I was glued to it. Now let's go to your feelings on the implications. They took this away. Um, they took some of the, probably the angel hair and the metals and such away. You have the bracket, okay? You got it from Remy. You got it now. <laughs> and it's somewhere else, so don't go looking in your homes. What do you think the state of military back engineering of this kind of captured technology, what state is it really in? How much do you think has really come of it through the years? Um, I'm glad you asked that because that's really the key question if Congress really wants to ask a question, which I'm not sure they do, but if they want to ask a question, the, the, the key question is how much longer are we going to keep this beyond top secret? Yes. Okay. Beyond, and I, I, I've worked, you know, along in my career, both in, you know, in, in science and in venture capital and so on with people who had high clearances. They didn't know anything about this. Yes. Why? Well, because they had the wrong clearances. There are three different systems of clearances in the U.S. government. Okay. One system goes to the president through, you know, the appropriate agencies. One system is foreign intelligence, which only goes to the State Department and to the diplomatic services. Mm -hmm. 
and gets properly reported if there is a need to, you know, to the level of the executive. Okay. And then there are the atomic clearances, which are completely separate. Those are the highest clearances, aren't no, they? No, they, they are very high clearances. Well, I guess you would be at all, all levels. Three systems, sure. okay? yeah. They are clearances that are so exquisite that yeah. you know, only a few people mm -hmm. uh, have the right to know. Because having the clearance doesn't give you the right to know. Mm -hmm. So you have to have both. You have to carry the card, and then somebody has to decide that you should know about this particular secret mm -hmm. that you're already cleared for. Mm -hmm. okay? You have the ticket, yeah. okay, but the, they won't necessarily tell you. Yeah. And you might not, the code word might not be open, might not be available. In, on the atomic side, which this is, um, there are clearances called R, P, and Q. You know, mining your P's and Q's, mm -hmm. okay, um, that, that are the atomic secrets. Mm -hmm. And uh, those would be the secrets that people had at Los Alamos, you know, the secrets that are still in existence about the atomic bomb and about the nuclear, the nuclear developments. Those go through a completely separate channel and they don't go to the White House mm -hmm. unless there is a need at, that, at a particular point, you know, in current affairs or in history mm -hmm. to, to, for that to be presented, you know, mm -hmm to the executive, mm -hmm. okay? Because otherwise you, you cannot, number one, you cannot have a lot of people knowing about it, mm -hmm. and also you, the people would not know under what circumstances this should get the attention, you know, of, yes. the, of the White House and of the executive. So there are, all those things are appropriate, appropriate boundaries to the secret. Yes. I was going to try to find, in fact, a quote on exactly this that you um, put in the book. And I thought I had written the page down, but I hadn't. But I remember basically what it says. And it says you have to remember that the, these uh, same documents are going to be analyzed and taken to the same people who have covered this up for the last 75 years. And they can spin it any way they want. Yes. Same dossiers go to the same agencies. And it's, when and, does this end? And I don't have, I'm not a whistleblower, you know, when that. I'm a very disciplined scientist. Yes, People you are. People will, will tell you <laughs> yeah. I am. Yeah, you're that's not a conspiracy theorist. You know, <laughs> <laughs> that's why I'm in Silicon Valley and yeah. I work with teams. Yeah. I love to be a team member. I know what I can bring and I know what I don't know. Okay, But the, the problem with, and, and the secrecy probably was appropriate during the Cold War. Okay, It had to be in somebody's basement in some out-of-the-way place and nobody talks about it. But... We've emerged from that. We're in a different era now. Um, we're in, a, in an era of, you know, where the, the earth itself is in trouble, you know, all over the place. We need cooperation and we need to get the scientific community involved. We need clean, effective technology and energy production just to start. Well, it, with secret technology, if you find, say, a prototype from China somewhere, suppose the Tic Tacs are from China. And we get one, okay? We catch one, mm -hmm. okay? Um, it's going to be taken apart and it's going to be given to different teams and different companies, you right. know, Lockheed, Boeing, right. MIT, uh, you know, IBM. We'll look at different things. The people looking at the control system are not the people who are going to look at the propulsion, right. okay? And they may not know that the other labs exist, and that's the way it has to be to preserve the secrets. Mm -hmm. You know, it's compartmentalization. But when is, is it ready? When do, does it no longer need to be secret? So, but you're not going to find out what it does until these people exactly. can talk to each other. Exactly. Okay, but they are, it's illegal for them to talk to each other. <laughs> we, we need to stop that. We need to stop you know, it. Somebody in, in Washington needs to say enough of that. Yes. You know, the, the scientific community knows I mean, we think scientists are skeptics and so on. That's not true. They, at, at, if you go to the right level, you'll have a very interesting conversation yes. about UFOs. Mm -hmm. okay? yes. And you'll find that people are edu have educated themselves about it and that they have the same questions we're discussing here, yes. you know, between us. And, uh, I mean, we have no problem in Silicon Valley recruiting people to come look at this bracket. Okay? Mm -hmm. 
And, and <laughs> they want to you see put it, it on the table and everybody mm-hmm. has a different opinion. Mm-hmm. And, and that's where we start from. Yes. Again, you know, Federico Fagin saying, if we stop doing this, we might as well disband Silicon Valley. Everybody exactly. goes home. Well, you two have done such a beautiful job constructing this. And as we say, the science may not be settled. It may be continuing. The exploration is going to continue. And what you said is absolutely critical, that if we can't start allowing these these entities to talk to one another and to reveal what we really have and what the potential for humanity, for our Earth is, then what's the point? I mean, it's getting to this point, it's becoming gratuitous to keep it a secret anymore. And I'm just so grateful that you two came together <laughs> to do this because there's so much heart and warmth. And I have to tell you, for a techie scientist kind of guy, what an elegant, beautiful writer you are. He is, he is. He actually, he, and this is your second language. Yes. <laughs> I am so impressed. So anyway, I highly recommend it. Yes. A quick question. First of all, did you like the treatment of yourself as a character in Close Encounters of the Third Kind? Well, Were you okay with it? Um, <laughs> Sorry to put you on the was, spot. I, I have a lot of respect for Mr. Spielberg and yes. what he did. He's the only... Um, Really, uh, only one in Hollywood who understood the, you know, the human aspect of this. It's yes. not just technology. No, it's human. Something shows up. We get afraid. We start shooting it. I mean, you know, the usual shoot em up, you know, alien film. Um, he understood what was behind it. And, and the idea of, of, of getting François Truffaut was... I love it. Was, was, <laughs> I, was, I love it. I have it. a lot of respect, you know, coming from, from France for yeah. his movies. I love it. it I, I, I thought and, it was wonderful. And there's wonderful. a sense of humor. One thing I'm very you know, proud of is that uh, the, the, the sequence where they, uh, you know, they, they steal the globe, yes. you know, from the... Well, that, that's something that's an anecdote that I told Spielberg, yeah. and we had lunch one day, <laughs> uh, about something that happened when Sputnik was launched. There was... Nobody had a computer program in the U.S., to compute an orbit of a satellite of the Earth. Yeah. You could compute an orbit of a satellite of, Ma- of uh, Jupiter or something like that, but not, not of the Earth. So they, they had to take a globe and put a piece of string around the globe to see where the Sputnik 1 was going to go next. And Dr. Hynek was involved in that, <laughs> and he had the picture. And I told that story to Spielberg, and he said, that's it, you know, that's it. They say, we've got a billion dollars worth of technology here. It's all secret. It's all classified. And nobody has a map of, My- uh, a map of Wyoming, you know, and get me a map of Wyoming. And they steal that globe. Okay. That, that whole thing was one of the funny parts in the movie. Oh, so, thank you for sharing so that, that with us. Funny. I love it. I never well, got paid for that. Well, that's okay. You got paid in other ways. Yeah, okay. No. <laughs> you get to live with that. No, no, that was a lot of fun. Oh, I, I love it. And, and, and there is a fun element in that. There is a fun element in learning. Mm-hmm. And I'm still learning. Uh, you know, I didn't know much about the history of World War II in the Pacific. Mm-hmm. And I knew the history in Europe. Yeah. I didn't know the history in the Pacific. And there are some incredible, incredible things. And they are not. Teaching talked about. In school no, they're not. About the war, the end of the war in Japan. Yeah. And what it did to Japan. Yeah. You know, what Another it did show. to us. Another show. <laughs> and kudos to you for continuing to learn every day, every breath of your life. I very much have res- deep respect for that. And same for you, Paula, to go out with such passion and heart and go out and get these stories and bring them to us and bring people together like this. Anything final you would like to say before yes. we say goodbye? Uh, in the collaboration uh, idea, you know, this is the first time I've collaborated on, on anything, and it's been a pleasure collaborating with Jacques on it, and I learned so much, too, because my job is basically to get the witness testimony, and his job is to call me and ask me, about an 18-wheeler, and I'm going, okay, well, why do I have to do this? And he goes, because I have to calculate how heavy that object was. And so I learned a lot from the collaboration, and may I encourage uh, the other researchers out there that do field research to collaborate on on cases. With one another. With one another. Just as you say, in the military-industrial complex with all these technologies, they need to start speaking. So do you guys. The the UFO community needs to start speaking and not, you know, ridiculously guarding their one little piece of the story. It's not appropriate anymore. 
Well, you know, one thing I learned along the way talking to the right people is that most reverse engineering doesn't work. Maybe yes, 80% of it. Yes, that's why I asked you that earlier. We can't figure out what that is that the, the Russians did or the right. Chinese did. You get a piece of something that fell from the sky yeah. and you find, you find some gadget inside. You don't know what that thing does. And maybe it's intended that way. Maybe it was not. It was done in such a way that there was no way at this point in our history until we get a little smarter, wiser, and more collaborative to have it engineered. So I can live with that mystery. And I want to thank you both. This has been just <laughs> delightful. I've so been thank looking you. forward yeah. to it. And I so loved the book. I was reading it like a novel. Well, obviously you did your your homework, your questions were right on. So well, thank you. We'll thank you. you. And, and I hope to see you both again in the studio one day, as is appropriate. Anytime. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Thanks. Again, the book is titled Trinity, The Best Kept Secret, which you can find through all the normal booksellers. It's a fascinating, beautifully written, reflective study of where we are as a species in our connection with the UFO and ET phenomena. Until next time, thank you for joining us here on Open Minds. Thank you for listening to this episode of Gaia's Disclosure Podcast. To learn even more, go to Gaia.com, where you can watch interviews, movies, and original series. Gaia.com, content you can't find anywhere else. For more information, visit GaiaDisclosure.com.